Amen. Well, saints, if you would open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1. On Wednesday, we did cover the first three chapters as we went through this book expositionally. But this morning, I want to just pause a little bit and have us focus on just one aspect. So while you're there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, scroll down to verse 15. I want to read to you the first three verses here um, within this, from verses 15 through 17. And then I want to just kind of focus on what it is that God has to say through this. It begins in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Christ Jesus might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. And now to the king, eternal, immortal, Invisible, the only wise, who alone is wise, to him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Such an incredible thing that Paul does. Now, if you have this practice of doing devotions, what you may want to do is actually put verse 15 and just, just read it and memorize it. Have this down before you even open your Bibles. Pray this in. Because this is basically the whole gospel, the entirety of the Bible that Paul condenses into one little verse here in verse 15. And it's such an incredible thing. And he makes even a statement, just in case you were unaware. He says, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. If you can get this down, everything else will just begin to flourish within you. So he says this is a faithful saying, and it makes sense a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. Now, the word faithful simply means it's sure, it's true. The saying is sure, the saying is true, and it's worthy, it's deserving of all acceptance. In other words, you can fully take it, you can fully receive it. That's what this saying is. So what is this saying? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then just to make sure that you tack on at the end of whom I am the chief. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. That term Christ, for those of you that are aware of it, it means that he is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. Remember when Jesus came onto the scene, he said, the spirit of God has anointed me to preach. He was anointed that literally God had touched him. We know that he was God in the flesh, but what he does is he literally internalized all of his deity. And what he does is Luke begins to declare to us, he does what he does as a man, but under the surrendering power and the leading and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So we see here that he was anointed. God had touched him, anointed him, covered him, and then he says it was Christ Jesus. Now that term Jesus, as you're aware, remember there when the angel was talking to Joseph there in Matthew chapter 1, and he made this incredible statement. He says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. The name Jesus is a derivative of the Hebrew word Joshua, which is Yahweh is salvation. So when he says he's the, you know, he's Christ Jesus, he's the anointed Savior. That's what you want to have in your mind. He is the anointed Savior. He's the one that God has touched and empowered to save us. So even his name itself, Jesus, the name which is above all names, the name to which every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess, that name itself decries that he is a savior. Yahweh is salvation. That's Joshua, Yeshua. So we begin to see here 
within that, then he says, Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Now, as we look to this, I think it's important to realize that here he came into the world. We see here that he's the one who initiated this work. Understand that he didn't say, I'm in heaven, you guys work your way up to me. He said, don't, don't worry, I will come down to you. I will initiate. He came into this world. So as we realize that he came into this world, we understand that he is the pre-existing God. If you want a, a passage, just to simply jot down in Philippians chapter 2, I want to read a couple of verses to you. I want to read verses 5 through 8, but it simply declares this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's talking about this mindset. He says, who being the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. And he says, and he took on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man being found in the appearance became a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus Christ being God, being God humbled himself and came to earth as a man. Think about that. He came to earth as a man. What does that mean to you and me? Well, think about this. Let's just say that God said, you know what? When we're in heaven and he, he looks down at this creation, he just made a planet. It was a planet of cockroaches. And within that, he said, you know what? I made this, this, this planet of cockroaches, and of course, they're cockroaches. We all know cockroaches aren't the nicest of things. We would call them in the Christian dialect as what? Oh, they're sinful. They are wretched. They are decrepit. They're cockroaches. And if God said this to just one of his children, he said, listen, I really love those cockroaches. I love them. You have no idea. I created them and I love them. And they're cockroaches. They're nasty. They're horrible. But I want to redeem them. I want to save them. So if you could do me a favor, he would say to one of us, if you could become a cockroach, go down to this little community of cockroaches that I created and then know this, tell them how much I love them. Tell them I created them. But you got to understand, they're not going to believe you. They're not going to believe you. They're not going to receive you. As a matter of fact, they're going to kill you. They're going to kill you. You will be a dead cockroach. We think of it good, but think about that. You're a dead cockroach. He says, but don't worry about it. I will raise you up again. I'll raise you up. But know this, know this. You will be alive and you will be with me, but you will be a cockroach for the rest of eternity. Think about that. Who here would say, okay, yeah, I, I know how much you love them and I will become a cockroach, but then can I come back and be? No, you'll have to remain a cockroach for eternity. God became flesh. God became a man. Think about that. And now he remains this man with the scars, with the wounds, eternally. That's how much he humbled himself. But then he's now sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting there with God. But understand, that's what he did. He came so far that God becoming man is a further step down than you and I becoming a cockroach. It would be like becoming an amoeba or a germ, or a COVID virus, something like that, and having to remain one forever. But this is what he did. He humbled himself, became a man who was in the form of God, didn't consider robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, coming in this form of a bond servant, a servant of man. That's what he did. Christ Jesus came into this world. He, he came to this point where he humbled himself. And so he initiated, he came into this world humbling himself, becoming a man. And why? Why does he come into this world? Why did God become a man? Well, it says here in our text, to save sinners. Oh, this is a, a worthy saying. This is an incredible faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. So then the question is being is that, okay, well then who are the sinners? Why did he come to save these sinners? 
When we take a look at this, and I want you to see here that if you want to take a, a title for the message, you can simply say this is salvation's message. In other words, it's a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance. But within it, there's a couple of points that we want to focus on. Is One is salvation selection, and that's here is the sinners. The next thing that we're going to be looking at is salvation's pattern is there in verse 16. He says that here, that through me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as this pattern. And then lastly, we're going to see salvation's reaction as we look into verse you know, 17. Now to the king, eternal immortal. And as we look to this, I think it's important to really see salvation's selection. In other words, sinners. Now, I want you to see here, when you look at verse 15, he says, He came into this world to save sinners. There's no identifier before that. Now, now notice it doesn't say that he came into this world to save the horrible, the wretched, the miserable sinners. That he came into this world to save the worst of the sinners. And it doesn't even say that he came in to, the, to choose the smallest, the littlest, the most insignificant of sinners. He doesn't do a qualifier. There is no, so no matter how you look at your own life, and if you were to look at your life and say, I'm not that bad of a sinner. Well, understand, you're still qualified. <laughs> if you say, well, I'm a horrible sinner, it's like, then you're more than qualified. There, there, there's, there's no definitive term before the word sinner. And to me, that was significant. That was significant because if anyone says, okay, well, if I'm a horrible sinner or I'm not much of a sinner, it's still sinners. He still came to what? To save sinners. That's what he came to do. The Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And it's important to realize that he came to save them. Now, understand that that term saved it implies all kinds of things biblically. And it involves grace and mercy and redemption and forgiveness. But understand that those who are innocent, they don't need forgiveness. Those who are innocent, they don't need mercy. They don't need grace. They don't need saving. Do you understand? Only the lost need saving. Only those who are doomed need saving. So what does it mean? He means that we're all doomed. No matter how, how far you think you've wandered or how, how if you barely wandered at all, the bottom line is we're all doomed. And just in case you're thinking, it's like, well, you know what? I don't think I've ever sinned. I don't think I've ever done wrong. Now, now maybe you were one of those very special two-year-olds and four-year-olds. Remember, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but there's certain times when the parents begin to give their baby solid food. Now think about this for just a second. When your parent gives you peas or squash and you, you, you put that into their mouth and the baby with that little you know, plastic rubbery spoon spits it out, do you know what you've done? You just at that moment, you said, I didn't honor my mother or my father. You've already sinned at that age. And then when you hit your twos, when you hit your twos and you hit your fours and you hit your thirteens and sixteens, and then when you hit your adulthood, well, then no one can tell you, but you know. And it's amazing that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And just in case you're thinking, wait a second, no, I really, lo, that wasn't me. I was a perfect little kid. I, was, I, I always ate my peas. I always ate my spinach. I ate everything my parents cooked. Never said, they never questioned me. They never disciplined me. I was this perfect child, still a perfect adult. And if you think that's you this morning, well, what I'm going to ask you to do is this. I want you to think of another category. Don't think about your actions to say, well, my actions have been perfect for my life. Here's this next category. Just a question for you. Are you a descendant of Adam? Now, if you are a descendant of Adam, in other words, have you been born? Because <laughs> if you're born, know this, you are a descendant of Adam. Why? Because there was initially just Adam. And then from Adam, God made Eve. And then through them became what? Everyone was born 
and was a descendant of Adam. So here's the category. Are you a descendant of Adam? So if you are a descendant of Adam, then I want you to understand that you have inherited an aspect of what is known as a dominant trait of his nature. Not a recessive trait. I'm going to tell you something. See, a lot of people think that sin is a recessive trait, not a dominant trait. In other words, think about this. Your eyes. What color are they? Well, depend on what your parents are. You have either certain dominant traits, which means all of your descendants will pick up this trait, or you'll have a recessive trait, which means some will get it, some won't. Well, understand that the sin nature of Adam, hate to say it to you, it's a dominant trait. Every one of us receive that aspect of his nature. And as you've received an aspect of that nature, I want to share with you just a couple of verses from a, a book called Romans in chapter 5. If you're a note taker, just jot this down. Because in Romans chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 12. I'm going to jump down to verse 15. And then I'm going to read verses 17 through 19. But for you guys, just put down, you know, 11 through 19. Read it in context. Make sure I'm not trying to sell you something. But here in Romans 5, beginning in verse 12, he makes this statement. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. All Paul is saying here is because of Adam and his dominant trait called the sin nature, we're all doomed. He said that's why we need saving, not because necessarily you did something wrong, but because you inherited the sin nature from Adam. It's because he did something wrong. Now, now granted, maybe through your life that you've actually verified the fact that, yes, I do have a sin nature. Not only can I say that I got it from Adam and it's somewhere in there, but it's manifested its ugly head from time to time. But he says here, as though through sin entered the world through this one man and death spread to all men. Now, in verse 15, it says kind of the same thing, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. See, what Paul is trying to say is there's this first Adam, and keep in mind, Adam simply means man. That's all it is. You have the first Adam, and then you have what Paul begins to declare is the last Adam. You have the first man, the last man. Why? Well, because you're seeing this first man, he brings in this dominant trait called the sin nature. This last Adam brings in another dominant trait called holiness. And as we all receive the dominant trait of the sin nature from the first Adam, anyone who accepts the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we get the dominant trait of what? This righteous nature, this robe of righteousness that is his gift to us. So he talks about here, there's this one man, the first Adam, and through him, that dominant trait, sin nature. But there's this next, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, through him is going to be life. Now, in verse 17 through 19, it declares this of Romans 5. For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. What is he saying? Because of Adam's nature that he passed on to all of us, judgment came. In other words, we're all condemned resulting in condemnation, but even so through one man's righteous act, Jesus Christ going to the cross, shedding his blood, paying the penalty for my sin and your sin, that 
righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So from Adam, we receive this gift called condemnation. Through Jesus Christ, you get this second gift called justification. Condemnation is what? Hey, you're doomed regardless of what you've done. It's just inherited. Justification is this, just as if you've never had that nature. He receives you as brand new. This is absolutely incredible. And so we begin to see here in verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, this is Adam, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, this Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, many will be made righteous. So when you think about what here Paul is trying to say, say, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance. The Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And understand, you can put your name there. To say, oh, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save Lowell. Or put your name there. I mean, you can say Lowell, I don't care, you'd be right. But he came into this world to save you. You can't exclude yourself from this list because there's no qualifier before the term sinners. And even though you think you may have never sinned, Understand, you received that sin nature from your father as he received it from his father, as he received it from his father, and so on and so on as we received it from Adam. And the moms are saying, yes, they didn't get it from me. No, they get other things from you. But, but keep in mind as we see this, it's so important to recognize here the salvation selection, it's everyone. There's no one who's excluded from this list. This is why Jesus Christ came. He came into this world. God became flesh. He humbled himself to save the sinners. And so keep in mind that we as sinners, we who have inherited that trait from Adam, we do need saving because the innocent they don't need saving. The innocent are not condemned. But as we were reading there, we're all condemned because we receive this nature from Adam. And all we do is we just what? We just prove it time after time. And now he says this. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. The Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Paul makes this statement. He says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Now, it's interesting that he would look to all other people, and you know how he has this issue with these false teachers. You know how he has an issue with the, the Judaizers and those who, you know, want everyone to be circumcised, and, and they have this thing about the law, and he wants to say, no, we're under grace, we're free from this. But he doesn't point to them as the worst. He doesn't say, I'm right behind them. He simply says that I'm the chiefest of sinners. Now, why would he say that he's the chief sinner? If you're familiar, there's a portion of scripture found in the, the book of Matthew. Don't turn there, just jot it down. Matthew chapter 7. And what happens is this. There, there's a point where in the first few verses, he talks about being careful how you look to other people. And what he says is this, when, when, you, when you look at your brother and you see a speck in his eye, remember that there's what? There's a plank in your own eye. So if you're going to say who's the chiefest of sinners, then it's this. It's me comparing planks to specks. See, if I don't consider myself the chief of sinners, then I'm saying you have the plank, I have the speck. But Jesus taught us differently. He said, at first you deal with a plank that's in your own eye, and then, then you'll actually see clearly to deal with the speck that's in your brother's eye. So understand that a plank in the eye requires what? Radical surgery. 
You don't just, you got a plank in your eye. You don't, well, just put a little water on it. It'll be fine. No, but you got a speck in your eye. And you just go what? You go to the fountain, put some water on it. The speck is washed out. So I think when he says the chief is a sinner, he's looking at that ability to say, I'm dealing with the planks that are in my own eye, not the, the specks in my brother's eyes. So he's looking at himself and he's looking at his own sin. And when you look at yourself and you look at your own sin, it should be so much greater, so much greater than others. Why? Because when you compare how often you've sinned against God to how often others sinned against you, you realize what? There's no comparison. See, Jesus gave a parable of a man who once owed more than he could ever pay, and there was another person who owed him just a pittance. And so when this king forgave that man this incredible debt, he then went out and found someone who owed him a pittance. Now that man went to the king and says, oh, please have mercy with me and I'll pay you all. And the king knows there's no way you're going to pay this, but don't worry, I'll forgive you the debt. But this man went out and he grabbed this fellow brother by the, the, the collar and said, hey, you pay me what you owe. And the guy said, hey, have mercy with me and I'll pay you all. But he didn't. He went and he put him into the debtor's prison. Well, when that king found out what that person's reaction was, he said to him, oh, why would you do that? I forgave you this incredible debt. Why would you not forgive someone who owed just a little? And we see here that work that God is trying to teach us. We owe God a debt that we could never repay. And others, what? They, they may have you know, sinned against us, but it's a pittance of what we've done to God. And if he can forgive us, the chiefest of sinners, the ones with the planks in the eyes, how could we then not forgive others, those with the specks and seek to wash them out once God is done dealing with the planks in our own? And I think this is so important where he talks about, you know, calling himself the chiefest of sinners. And so when we're looking at this portion where he says, this is his faithful saying, and, and just right there, that should be the verse that, you know, most of us have memorized John 3.16. Great verse to have, but if you really want to understand what the Bible is in a nutshell, it's this. It's 1 Timothy 1.15. And so if, if you, you know, want something to do for the new year, then let me just give you this little piece of advice. Memorize this verse. Just memorize it. Why? Because it's a faithful saying. As a matter of fact, it's worthy of all acceptance. The Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. You take that into your devotions, and oh my goodness, are you going to be blessed to realize I don't deserve this love. I don't deserve this grace. I didn't deserve salvation, but yet you set your love upon me anyways. You initiated by coming down. You humbled yourself. You're still a man. You would do this for me, just for me? The answer is yes. Oh, no wonder he says this is a faithful saying. It's worthy of just taking it in and receiving and holding on to it. And then he goes on in verse 16 as we look at salvation's pattern. He says, but however, for this reason, I obtained mercy. I obtained mercy, he says, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So he says, now understand, he says, this here in me first, for this reason, I obtained mercy. So as we're looking to this, we understand the salvation's pattern. And the pattern that he's going to do is where, where Paul says this, that he would show all long suffering. The term long-suffering is a unique term. It holds two Greek words. One is macro, and the second is thume, macrothume. Now, if you know the difference between a microscope and macrome, let's try it. What does micro mean? It's the smallest, tiniest thing. A microscope makes you look at something little. But macro may, or a macro star, macro is what? Something huge. You ever seen macro may? It's like taking this mass of things of yarn and making big owls from it or something. But that's macro may. It's large pieces of rope and yarn. Macro is a very large thing. 
Thume is where we get the term thermometer or temperature. So the term macrothume means this. It's a very high boiling point. Now think about this. When God looks at us, he should do what? Condemnation. That's it. That's what it should be. And it's not even getting, but then we continue to sin, we continue to thin, and then eventually this boiling point starts rising. But God has this incredible, massive boiling point. In other words, it almost never gets there. That's the grace of God. He says, God is going to show through me, the one who deserves this condemnation, this incredible grace, this long-suffering, this, this, this massive bowling point that he's not judging me when he should. Now, you have to understand that just no one is good enough. Whether you think you're good enough or not, just, just no one is good enough. I want to read to you a portion from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. And the reason I want to share this, it's a man that seems to have it all together, and yet even this man, we're going to find out, is not good enough. In Matthew 19, it says here in verse 16 that there was this one who came to him. A guy comes to Jesus and he calls him good teacher. So here in Matthew 19, verse 16, now behold, one came to him, came and said to him, good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? He says, can I do something good that I can have eternal life? That's a good question. What can we do? So, of course, verse 17, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There is no one, you know, no one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which one? So Jesus does, okay, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now keep in mind, it was all the commandments that dealt with fellow man, all of them. As he looking at all these commandments that deal with the fellow man, notice what he says in verse 20. The man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Now, this is incredible. He said, I've done all these things. I've kept them all. I'm really, really good. He says, is there anything else that I'm lacking? Now, before we read any more, I want to share with you here a parallel passage Jot it down, Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Stay here in Matthew 19, but I want to read to you Matthew 10, 21. So in, in Matthew 10, I'm going to read verse 20 and 21. He answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now in, in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus looking at him loved him. I want you to understand that Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, One Thing you lack. Only one thing. He says, if you do this one thing, this is only one thing. This is the one thing that you lack. And we see here, back in our text, where I was reading in Matthew 19, or in verse 20, the man said, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. At this point, he loves the fact that he's done everything well, but there's one thing that he's struggling with, and that is humility. Humility. That's humility. He loves to be able to do things for other people. I love to do things. I love to do things. I love to do things. And here Jesus says this. I want you to empty yourself of everything. Follow me and then let me do for you. Isn't that incredible? He said, let me do for you. 
She says, you let everything go. I know you've taken care and use what you have to bless others and bless others. And you elevate yourself because you're good. And you elevate yourself because you're kind. And you elevate yourself because you're generous. And you do all these things. But empty yourself completely and let me minister to you. Let me do for you. And so we see here, verse 22 But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Like, I'm self-sufficient. Why would I want to humble myself and be needy? Because God says, listen, you have to understand that that's your true nature anyways. We are needy. We are wretched, miserable, poor, blind. And God says, I will take care of you. See, when we realize that we're the chiefs of sinners, we realize, oh, you came to die for me. You came to save me. Well, when we see this and he goes away sorrowful, verse 23 says, Jesus came to his disciples and said, surely I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? And Jesus looking at them and said, but with men, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. In other words, who can be saved? (laughs) No man can save himself. Jesus knew this one man with everything that he would do that was amazing. The one issue that he had was the same thing as Satan. It was pride. The same thing that most of us is that we deal with. And I don't know if you've ever done a real study on sin. One of the things that you're going to find is no matter what sin it is, the root of that sin has to deal with pride. I deserve it. I'm worth it. You know, I can make my own decisions. The root of almost every sin is pride. And we see here that here, this one, he says, just give away everything and come and be with me. And he goes away sad. He could have had everything in Christ, but he says, no, I I can do this on my own. And it's interesting to see that here, this is that key. No one is good enough. Now, if you're curious, there's this portion of Revelation in chapter 5. I want to read to you just one verse. I want to read to you Revelation 5, verse 9. Now, this is a scene in heaven, and you have these incredible four living creatures, and you have these group that's called the 24 elders, and they put in all the prayers of the saints. And they make this statement in Revelation 5, verse 9. They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll. Speaking of the Lamb who was able to take the scroll, open its seals, for you were slain. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You realize that those who were the the, the chiefs in heaven, the 24 elders who sat around the throne, these are the best. They're the elders in heaven. And what are they saying? You redeemed us by your blood. You were slain, they said to the lamb, and you redeemed us by your blood. The very best in heaven have been redeemed. No one comes to heaven unless what? They can be redeemed. And so we begin to see here that, that, you know, those of us who think, well, I'm not, I don't need to be redeemed. I don't need to be saved. Well, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 12, or Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, he said that, that make sure that those who are not sick, well, they don't need a physician, But those who are sick, they need a physician. Let me actually just read it to you. Matthew 9, I'm going to read um, verses 12 and 13. It makes a statement. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners... To repentance. 
See, he didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. He came to call the sinners to repentance. And if you're wondering what the righteousness is, he says in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, I'll tell you what, they are pretty righteous. So let's just compare your righteousness to the scribes and Pharisees. Now, when you are there and you're at a barbecue or you're there at your dinner table and you put some salt on your meat or you put some pepper there, well, what the Pharisees would do is they would literally take their spices so they would count out nine for me, one for God. Nine for me, one for God. And they would put their spices on it. So when you were shaking that out, did you count your salts? And, and did you already separate that 10% for God? Well, if you didn't, guess what? If you just sprinkle away, your righteousness has already failed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so understand, he doesn't come to call the righteous. He comes to call the sinners. And I think this is what's so important that we see. Now, Paul himself, as he would look at all these other things, Paul would recognize something about the outwardness of his life. Because there were people who were complaining or who were literally declaring how righteous they were and how amazing they were. And, and Paul would try to help them out. He would make this statement. Let me share with you a little bit about how Paul and his life is. I'm going to be reading from Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. Paul makes this statement. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I am more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. This is Paul. He said, with everything that I'm doing, with everything that I have done, he says, I am blameless. Now he'll go on to say, verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's his key. It wasn't looking about who he was or what he did. He realized that when he thought initially that in his zeal, he was looking down at others. In other words, those people called the Christians, those who are of the way, the church. The way that he would do it on his outward life, he looked very righteous. But on the inward, what happened was this. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, <clears throat> Paul made this statement, though I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. He basically tells him exactly what he was. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent man. This is who Paul was. I want to give you three verses in the book of Acts trying to clear you into, clue you into who Paul was. It says this in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, jot it down. Paul says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging men and women, committing them to prison. In chapter 9 of Acts, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked the letters from them, from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that he found any who were of the way that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's still breathing threats. He's still breathing murder. In Acts chapter 22, Beginning in verse 19 and 20, he would make this statement. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and I beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Think about this. Everything on the outward of Paul seemed pretty good. And I think most of us have this tendency of what? Showing our best face. 
we can go into a crowd and, and it's amazing how many people have told me that they were on the way to church and they were having arguments and having disputes and they weren't happy. They walk in the church and, oh, how are you? I'm fine. Oh, I'm just fine. Everything's great. And yet what? In, in, your, in your heart, in your life, you're miserable. But we have a tendency of putting on this great outward face, but Paul knew deep down where he was is he was a sinner. He was just a sinner. And he was wretched. And he was this horrible individual. And so then the question is, with everything that he's going and that he's done, as far as his wretchedness, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an incident man. What do you do with it? Well, I want to share with you two verses, and I think they're, they're key. The first is found in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, for those of you that are familiar, that Paul was in this area, this town called Philippi. And he was imprisoned, and through him and Silas, there was this jailer when God brought this earthquake and opened up all the doors. And it says this in Acts chapter 16, and this is the, the, um, the, the jailer speaking. So he called for a light, the jailer does. He runs in. He fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs... What must I do to be saved? Think about this. Here's a man that in his position, he's outside the bars. Paul and Silas were inside the bars. They were worshiping God. God was showing him things. And, and yet here he says, okay, what must I? He knew he needed what they had. What must I do to be saved? It's interesting when you actually look at a life that's godly and then you realize, I'm missing that. I'm missing that. Nothing that I do, nothing that I have touches that life. Remember there in the Gospel of John chapter 3, Nicodemus, he's a ruler of the Jews. He's a ruler. He's, he's one who is wealthy. He's, he has a high place in society. He's a Pharisee. And, and so you, you see him as a ruler. He's a very righteous person. And yet he would look at Jesus Christ and says, I know you're of God. Because no one can do the things that you do unless God were with him. What is it? I'm missing something. See, he didn't look at his life and say, wow, I'm doing pretty good, just like you. But he looked at the life of Jesus and said, you have something I don't. And what did Jesus do? He says, listen, you got to be born again. What do you mean born again? So, well, you know, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? No, he said, no, it's not that. You have to be born of the water and of the spirit. You have to have a natural birth, yes, but you have to have this spiritual rebirth because our spiritual is dead. Why? Because we inherited a dead spiritual nature from Adam. And so we have to have what? We have to be born again in the spirit. And this is the thing when people recognize, what must I do to be saved? Well, Paul would give that answer. In the book of Romans, jot this down, verses 9 through 13. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and he says here in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the name, for the same Lord is over all. The same Lord over all is rich to all who, come upon, who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So it simply says very simply, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, there's this outward confession and this inward belief. And, and if you do that, if you recognize, oh my goodness, there is this faithful saying. And it's worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I'm the chief. Distinctly for me. Because I needed it so desperately. But this where he says, for this reason, I obtained mercy. Although I had all this thing going, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as a tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, concerning the law, righteous, blameless. Yet I just blew it horribly. 
Paul would go on to say when it came to all the things in the law, he says, I did it really well until I read the last one. If you're familiar with the last of the commandment is thou shalt not covet. See, all the other laws are an outward observance. The covet is the inward heart. And, and you can say, wow, you know what? I, I don't covet. Well, understand that we all have certain things that we want. We may want to have a reputation, or we may want to be blameless. We want people to see us a certain way. We're all coveting. And that's an inward thing of the heart. And it never, no one ever knows it on the outward, but it's there. And Paul said, if it wasn't for that one law that was just the heart, not the outward, that's the one that condemned me because my heart is so wretched. It's one of those things when you can look at your outward, you think you're good, you start looking at your heart and you realize there's so much to do. This is why what? A lot of us make New Year's resolutions. I got to fix this. <laughs> if you think you got to fix this, let me just tell you something. You've already admitted you're not perfect. So thus you're a sinner, and thus you know you need the grace of God. But he says here in our text, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Christ Jesus might show all longsuffering. That he should have condemned me. He should have rejected me. He should have had nothing to do with me because what I did to the church. Remember what Jesus said to, to Saul when he was on the road there to persecute the church. When he was on the road to Damascus, Jesus said, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? No, I'm persecuting the church. No, you're persecuting me. And he said, I did it ignorantly, but yet although he should have rejected me, he did what? He redeemed me. He saved me. He revealed himself to me. And he says this, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe that if Jesus could save Saul of Tarsus, who was breathing murder and threats and persecutors and blasphemy. He was an insolent man. He consented to the death of an innocent, spirit-filled man called Stephen. And if God could save him, guess what? He said, this is a pattern. If God can save me, he can save the, the very worst. He can save you. This is the pattern. And we see here salvation's pattern is to show this long-suffering that God is still waiting for you. If you haven't accepted him yet, guess what? He's still waiting. And he's still waiting and he's still waiting. And he'll continue to wait. And he will wait until you breathe your last. And by then it's too late. But he is going to be long-suffering. But my counsel to you is this. Don't wait. Receive the gift now. Because so much of your life is going to change and be transformed. But we see here where Paul said he's going to show this as a pattern to all those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. Do you want that guarantee? But then he says this. After he goes and he moves from how horrible he was. Back in verses, you know, at the end of verse 15, to, to say he was the chiefest of sinners, that God had to show him mercy and all the long suffering that he should have been judged but wasn't. And after he went and he focused on how horrible he was, he now shifts in verse 17 and starts looking at, oh my goodness, how wonderful and how loving and how gracious for this God to accept him and to redeem him and to save him and not simply reject him. He says, you, you, you should have rejected me. You could have rejected me. You're God and you chose not to. And because he said you've chosen to save me, he just burst into this doxology. He burst into this praise. And he begins to just, and you almost see that, that he's, he's there writing to the, you know, declaring to the scribe. And as he's coming to this point, he says, man, and, you know, he wanted to show, you know, the long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. And you almost just see Paul there just, just raising his hands now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. And we begin to see here that he begins to just declare this. Now he calls him now to the king. Do you understand what the king means? You're the reigning one. You're the one with authority. When you have a king, keep in mind, you don't elect the king. 
You don't, you don't have a popular vote. Who's going to be our king? The, the king there is placed. And he was the creator. He was the ruler. He is the king. And he says, now to the king. He's crying out to King Jesus, God in the flesh, who would come down now to the king eternal. And he begins to say that, that you are this eternal one. You existed long before anything else. You will exist long after everything else. You are the eternal one. And then he calls him immortal. Now, that term immortal has a unique term. It means that you're, you're, you don't decay and you're incorruptible. I don't know if you understand where Paul wrote to um, Corinth, and in the 15th chapter, he talks about how this mortal must put on immortality, how this corruption must put on incorruption. But he talks about this new body that we're going to be getting. But what he says about God is, you are already immortal. You've never been. You are immortal. You are beyond. You are undecaying. You are uncorruptible. Jesus Christ, he didn't decay in the, in the grave. He rose to everlasting life. And we begin to see that here he is uncorruptible. And when we begin to see this, he says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. You can't see him, but you still know his authority is there. And understand, that's the key with authority. You may not understand this, but let's just put it this way. I was in the Marine Corps. And as a Marine, if I received a word from my commanding officer, even though I didn't see him, if the word came down from my commanding officer, guess what I did? I obeyed. I didn't have to see him. I knew who he was. I never saw the commandant. Never saw the commandant. But guess what? Everything that he said, I obeyed. Even though I never saw him, never saw him. Knew he was there. But I never saw. And here he says, this is my king. I may not see him, but I know he is there. And even though I don't see him, it doesn't mean his authority is any less. And so now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As he begins to look at this incredible love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God, he burst out in praise. And if you've ever wondered or maybe thought in your life, why is it that my Christian walk is kind of dull? Why is it that I'm just kind of going through the motions? Let me just give you just a little thought to think through for the next, you know, few minutes and few hours and maybe for this year. That if you think Think about how amazing God is and how horrible we are and how he took us from the depths. It's, it says that God is able to save from the uttermost. We sometimes translate it from the guttermost. How bad and horrible I am. And yet he would take me from this place in the gutter. He would raise me up to be a child, a son and a daughter of God. And he would give us an inheritance that is incorruptible, will never go away. When you think of that, and if you can think of how horrible you are, and yet this incredible love of God, kind of naturally in your spirit, verse 17 begins to erupt. You just begin to erupt. When you come to this word and you think, wow, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. That my Christ Jesus came into this world to save me, the chiefest of sinners. Wow, what praise, what glory, what exaltation comes from there. Me who should be doomed, rightly justified, you've instead taken and you've poured your love upon me. Even when I wasn't seeking you, you came into this world. You initiated, you came to me. That's how much you loved me. I was running away from you and you kept pursuing me. The moment I turned around, I saw your face. It wasn't that you were here and I was running away and I turned around, I got a long ways to go. No, you've been pursuing me the whole time. And I turn around and there you are and I see this look of love. Not a look of anger, not a look of brutality, but a look of love. Saying, I love you so much. Come, come my child. Be mine. Inherit all of this is yours. This is an incredible, 
incredible, faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance. Let us take this, burn it into our hearts, burn it into our walks, burn it into our worship. Amen? Oh, Father, we are so grateful for who you are, how you work these things out. And it would only be you who would bring us at the beginning of this year, at the end of a crazy year, but you would bring us into this new year with a new mindset that we would come with this fresh understanding of a faithful saying that is worthy of all acceptance. It is such a good saying. It is worthy to receive it and accept it and hold on to it and to anchor it, to believe it and to receive it. That you, our Lord, would come into this world, that you would initiate the saving of us because we need it. We couldn't come on our own. With men, it's impossible. But with you, God, all things are possible. So we come and we worship you. We exalt you because of this truth that you came to save us and you have saved us, that we've accepted you, Jesus, in your finished work. And because of that, we worship, we exalt you. Oh, knit our hearts to you, we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, amen.